Hey, it's Phil Simon. My new book is out now. It is called The Nine, The Tectonic Forces Reshaping the Workplace. It's my best work to date, and I hope that you'll check it out. Thanks. Conversations about Collaboration, episode 51. Rob Cross joins me today. He's the Edward A. Madden Professor of Global Leadership at Babson College. We talk about his new book, Beyond Collaboration Overload, How to Work Smarter, Get Ahead, and Restore Your Well-Being. Oh, and Kevin Bacon makes an appearance during our chat. Let's get it on. Rob, where does this podcast find you? I am in uh, Wellesley, Massachusetts right now in Babson College, sitting in my uh, in my office right now. <laughs> yeah. Looks like the leaves are turning. Yeah, it's a pretty nice day. It's actually uh, uh, been inside all day, but it's a beautiful kind of one of those days in New England that you you think this is God's country and then you suffer through four months of winter <laughs> to try and get back to this day again. <laughs> so beautiful. Right. Out here. I, I miss having to wear a winter jacket, but that's neither here nor there. <laughs> uh, well, congrats on the book. I want to dive right in. I guess one of the statistics that people are really glomming onto is this notion that you could be 18 to 24% more efficient or save 18 to 24% of your time. Uh, talk to me a little bit how, how you arrived at that number, because as Corey Johnson, formerly of Bloomberg TV, used to say, that ain't nothing. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, what I do is I will go out and and we've done this for 20 years in different ways through the consortia, but I will use different kinds of analytics to map who's collaborating with whom and begin to understand in large groups. It may be 5,000, 20,000, 50,000 if we're looking at, for example, a large restructuring. But at the heart of what I started to do about 10 years ago, I just noticed with all the de-layerings, all the new technologies coming in, the globalization, just the complexity of work driving more interdependence, you could see the collaborative demands on people rising um, in the analytics that we had. And to a point where, you know, we've seen in our stuff about a 50% increase in the amount of time people are spending across all the kinds of collaboration, right? Meetings, emails, IMs, you know, videos, all the, the spectrum of things. And so it got me super interested in who are the people that are handling this well. So we would use the analytics to plot out here are the people that are having the greatest impact in these networks and taking the least amount of time, ultimately. So they're producing significant results and supporting their colleagues, but they're not consuming a ton of time. And I and they were about 18 to 24 percent more efficient than the average person in these places. So not the, the time sinks, right? <laughs> you see them coming and you know, you're going to lose a day of your life, but just, just average. And so that, you know, as with any kind of point where you find exemplars, you get really interested in what they're doing. And so I interviewed initially it was a hundred women and a hundred men across a whole bunch of organizations where we, we plotted these analytics to really get a sense of what they were doing that was enabling them to kind of claw that time back. Rather than just focus on macro trends though, one of the, I think the strengths of the book, is that you really personalize it, right? And you talk a little bit about personas, um, anonymizing them to the extent that these are actual people. Mm. But uh, talk a little bit, I don't know, was Steve the first one, the CE, uh, CEO? Scott, yeah. Scott, that's right. Uh, yeah. <laughs> thought he was helping people, but was actually yeah. not. And how collaboration is often counterintuitive. In fact, by some ways in answering questions and right. becoming this, for lack of a better term, choke point, you're actually enabling 
others to expect more from you and unintentionally slowing things down. I thought that was a really interesting way of taking something that might get lost at, for lack of a better term, 30,000 feet and brought it down to someone go, oh, I kind of do that. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, one of the biggest surprises for me in this work was I came into it just absolutely convinced that the enemy was out there. You know, it was time zones, emails, nasty bosses, demanding clients. It was things that were outside of our control that was driving the excessive demands on us. And yet coming through all those interviews, it really, you know, hit me that about 50% or more of the problem is us and our, our tendencies to jump in when we shouldn't. And that this takes many different forms. So a lot of times when people see these analytics and we're, we're looking at who are the most overwhelmed people in a group or you find leaders that are too dominant, uh, the knee-jerk reaction is always that's a uh, control freak, right, or a micromanager. And yet you would find people got into those overwhelmed positions for all sorts of reasons. You know, in Scott's case, he believed that leadership at an incredibly deep level was helping others. Right? And so servant based mindset. And if you believe that, right, it's a great thing up until you can't sustain it. Right. If you create yourself as the path of least resistance for everybody, um, then at some point, you know, it's going to overwhelm you. And that's what uh, was was happening to him. Um, and that's kind of the insidious thing about collaborative overload in all this game is it feels good right up until it doesn't. <laughs> you know, you feel like you're in the thick of things. People are responding off you. There's energy. And a lot of times it's that that tendency we all have. For him, it was a desire to help. For others, it's a desire for status in a situation. Um, for some, it's a desire for accomplishment. I mean, that's my big driver. If I see five minutes of space, I'll jam 60 minutes of stuff in it. And then forget the two hours of coordination I have to do too, right? To get people aligned or to agree with what I'm doing. And what we found through all the interviews is there are about nine of these triggers. And being aware of that and kind of guarding against it is really critical because they lead us to jump in in these really small micro moments early. And we get absorbed into work and then we're overwhelmed six weeks later and half the time don't even remember that we started it to begin with. You know what I mean? It was our kind of tendency to jump in in that small moment. Um, so that's one of the really critical things that people don't always think about if they're just focusing on the tactics of how do I get faster in meetings <laughs> or faster with email or other things like that. That's a, important, but not the whole, not the whole solution in this game. I couldn't agree more in, in the book you write about changing behaviors. Um, to me, I've said this probably during six or seven different of my podcasts, we, we love to blame the tools because they can't blame us back. Right. So if you shift from using email for internal communication or collaboration to Slack or Microsoft Teams, you really haven't solved any problem, right? You just moved it from right. one to the other, right? To, to what extent are you invoking a rule of, look, after my favorite is the three email rule, after three, get on the phone. Right. Now, you can right. relax that a little bit, but it does force this change of mindset of, oh, I'm too busy to take the call. And I would always say, you don't understand a five minute call obviates 17 messages right. back and forth, right? There's right. nothing that you can write in that 18 message that makes you go, Oh, now I get it. Right. right. <laughs> Cause you're locked in, right? Your, your right. path is kind of charted on what you're looking yeah. for. <laughs> so, so talk to me a bit more about uh, the need to change behaviors and specific things. Cause I know it's, it's part of the, uh, the cycle. That's the, uh, the affinity sign, but yeah. I, I think that's such a critical piece of it, right? It isn't just about the tools. It isn't just about fewer zoom meetings. It's about I think, thinking differently about collaborate. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, what, what we could see in here um, is that the more efficient collaborators, one of the things they did was they challenged these triggers that we're just talking about, you know, that knee jerk tendency to jump in. And so if it's a desire to help, it may be that you're just kind of aware and saying, saying yes means saying no. 
you know, I may jump in and solve this situation, but it's going to take me away from something else later on. Or um, people just kind of had these, you know, tendencies to guard against their own, you know, knee jerk impulses. But then beyond that, so there's nine of those. And then there was eight um, things that really had to do with how people put structure into their world a little bit differently. So we would find that, um, for example, uh, they were more likely to block reflective time. And we're finding that kind of a two hour block um, in certain kinds of work is really optimal. There's like a one-on-one correlation to productivity and other things like that. But across all the interviews, what I would really find at a deeper level is these people got really good at kind of knowing their rhythm of work, right? And kind of managing as much as they could to put that structure into work versus becoming overly reactive, right? To the systems and things coming at them. So as an example, I would, you know, get on the phone with one of the efficient collaborators early and they would say, well, the first thing I do is email and then I get on to strategic work. And then, you know, you'd start to think, okay, is that a best practice, you know, as you're going through this and the next person I would get to they would say, are you crazy? <laughs> I'm not going to start with email. If I start with email, I never get off. And, and so for them, you know, they would start creative and they would do email in 30 minute blocks through the day they would communicate to others when, and their message back to me was like life, you know, adapts around you if you let it, right. If you kind of put some structure in and those ways. Um, and, and so that was a really big deal. There's about, you know, a series of ways that people kind of put structure into their work, strategically calendaring Friday night or Sunday night for one week and three months kind of intervals, um, managing interdependencies ahead of asks, right, before things come to them and it's, you know, too late or to a confrontation. But that turns out to be really critical because it's those sets of things that kind of also block you from a lot of unnecessary, you know, kind of connections that, that come your way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree completely. I feel like if we don't change our behavior, we're not going to improve things. Plus, I don't know about you, but I just, it's not, a, even if we were to return to work tomorrow, the world has shifted. I saw the Microsoft uh, state of work report yeah. updated a couple of hours ago that out 50 percent, sorry, almost 50 percent of workers are thinking of moving. Right. And if they move, that doesn't mean that they can't go back, but right. it's unlikely that they're going to tolerate a one hour commute each way. And right. it just, this is so foundational to me. And, and yes, you could look at it as a crisis and on many levels it is, but I'd also argue that it's an opportunity. Oh, right? Totally. Right? So we yeah. want to go back to the world of work as if the world of work pre-COVID was perfect. Well, how much right. time did we waste in bullshit meetings? Right, right, right. right. I mean, two, two thoughts off of that. One is uh, what's intriguing to me is we'll, we'll run these network analyses, and this is a slightly different program of work, but we've been looking at return to office strategies and using network analytics to say, okay, these are the clusters that you want to bring back at different points. Here's what they need to be using that face-to-face time for, because it's going to become more precious um, in terms of what's being done in the networks. But one of the more <laughs> fascinating things is we'd run the analytics and then we'd be asking people, okay, you know, what's your desired, you know, amount of days a week that you're going to go back, right? You're willing to go back. And at the heart of it, what we're finding is the people that are most central in these networks that most other people go to, they're the ones that have largely figured out there's a different way to live their lives. And so they're the ones a lot of times that are saying, you know, you, you can't force me back five days a week, right? Or whatever the algorithm might be. Um, and so the, the attrition numbers that people are projecting, it's, I think it's actually worse than people recognize because you're likely to lose the people that are helping the most others. They're the ones that are most likely to go. So it's not just the person, it's the network, right? That's being disrupted um, in that, in that uh, process. 
Um, so we'll see. It'll be interesting to kind of see. Most of the companies in the consortia that have done this are then saying, okay, these are our critical influencers. We need to get them in, on board and helping to design the return strategy and make sure that we're not forcing something, but it's, it's an engaging return, you know, where people want to be back with, uh, with different clusters. Um, but I got to tell you one more story and then I'll shut up when one of the things that, uh, that, that I was amazed by, um, in terms of kind of taking control of the situation was, uh, about eight weeks into the pandemic. Um, I was part of different surveys that were going out to, you know, thousands of organizations, you know, pulsing on their experience of, uh, COVID pandemic and everything. And they allowed me, I put in a few questions around the relationship side, but then they allowed me to put in this open-ended question around, you know, what are you learning from this experience? Because as a society, we'd never had anything like this, right? And and so I thought, you know, you, you send something like that, it goes out to 10, 20,000 people, and you're lucky to get a couple of pages <laughs> of open-ended text, right? Nobody fills it out at that point. Um, but we were getting hundreds of pages back, and it was like incredibly thoughtful, and, and, but it was of two completely different, uh, characterizations. So there would be one, you know, route that you go through and read these stories. And the people would say to exactly to your point, you know, thank God I don't have my commute anymore, right? I've got two, two and a half hours of my life back. I'm talking to my significant other. I'm eating better. I'm sleeping more. You know, thank God I don't have my commute. And then, and then the exact reverse would be the next quote down. It'd be, Oh my gosh, where did my commute go? That was the only time I had to think now meetings are in on me constantly. What am I going to do? How am I going to get through this? And what I, I thought was really fascinating and really critical as we move into the remote context is for that second group, it wasn't the commute, right? It was that they gave up control of the situation. Um, and they didn't, you know, have clarity on what was important to them and they didn't maintain. Um, kind of that space and invested in connections that mattered in different ways. And so I think to me, in one of the heart, uh, you know, the big points I try to make in this book is, you know, as we go forward, it's never more important than now to make sure you're finding ways to buy that time back, but also to make sure you're investing in connections that matter for performance and well-being. Um, yeah, I'm glad that you mentioned that because another thing that struck me at first when I read it was counterintuitive was this notion that big networks aren't necessarily efficient. Talk a little bit more about that distinction because yeah. I never thought of it in that way before. Yeah, yeah. So it's um, what we what we generally know is the, the network size. It's uh, only good for very transactional things like residential real estate sales or something like that, where knowing a lot of people can be an asset for you. Generally speaking, you know, work going back to the 1970s um, has shown that it's it's a structurally diverse network. So uh, connections into different pockets of an organization that or outside of an organization that allow you to be more innovative. Um, I my work shows over a couple of decades it's the second biggest predictor of a high performer as anything we've seen. Um, not a big network, but one you know more rich with these um, bridging ties. I always use Kevin Bacon as an analogy there because he's central in the movie universe, not because he's done a ton of films, but he's you know he starred in in you know actions, family, comedy, drama, thrillers. Whereas most people just stay in one genre, right? And what puts him there is not the number of films; it's the number of genres. Right. And so I'm not saying he's a good actor. You can kind of go your own call on that. But, yeah, but it is the pattern. Yeah. <laughs> this is the pattern we see of the, the high performers over time. And so what I got super interested in, because that's not just my finding, right? That's been studied, you know, from, from a lot of places and shown out. It, it posed a ton of questions to me, though, is like, okay, well, if that's the pattern, does that mean that people just constantly go out and meet people that 
are not like them, you know, and, and what's the balance between doing your work and building your network. And so the interviews that we did on that side of it was around 600 split across men and women to really understand what are they doing with that freed up time? Like if they're able to be more efficient, how are they then building connections that let them scale? And, you know, one thing we could see as an example is they were much more, they spent about 20 to 25% more time exploring possibilities with others, right? So it was a form of networking, not that, that somebody was racing up and saying, I need a job or help me with this. When the need was established, they were just exploring and getting a sense of how and where they could work with others across functional lines, capabilities, things like that. And then what that did is when opportunities passed by, um, and the right moment, their response was much more expansive. You know what I mean? If they had invested that time, um, they were able to ultimately pull together a network and produce something of greater substance. Um, and at the same time, they were building a better network, right? Because of what they were doing that would eventually bring things to them. So, um, and there's a little more nuance in there in terms of how they get scale out of the network. But uh, the cool thing to me is like, that's not, uh, winning because you're tapping into an invisible power structure, right? That's something that we can actually all control in terms of, you know, doing things in a way that help you perform and, and build a better, better network. Yeah. Talk a little bit about one of the surprising findings across gender. I would imagine that looking at such a robust data set, you can split the data a million different ways. Uh, but just in terms of the way that men and women responded, I'm really curious if there was something that jumped out on you or maybe something that was counterintuitive. Yeah. So what we could see is um, we compared, you know, women that were uh, conventionally more successful. And I use that word conventional because a lot of the things we're doing on well-being, I think we sometimes we shoot too hard for the promotion, right? Is thinking that's that's good. <laughs> and sometimes it isn't, right? It Sometimes it leads us into places that, you know, are overwhelming to us or whatever, men or women. I mean, anybody that's just kind of looking at at that today. I think the, the people that are better off and experiencing just greater happiness. They're differently kind of crafting their path forward um, in, in kind of cool ways. Um, but what we could see when we did those comparisons is that the women that were more conventionally successful um, than others, uh, one of the one of the pain points that they avoided was collaborative overload. So you could see that women tend to absorb more of the collaborative demands and networks than men uh, when we look at it analytically. And so if you're not taking action against that and finding ways to streamline connectivity, then um, over time, that becomes a 5, 10, 15 percent anchor on your time. Right. And it it uh, it hurts performance. And so there was some you know interesting things about that, about actions uh, that could be taken. Uh, there was also, you know, interesting uh, f things showing that women's networks tend to be more sticky over time, right? So they tend to stay in relationships longer than men, which can be a great thing if you're rejuvenating a client, right? Or you're, you know, going back and getting talent in different ways. So there's a positive to that, but it also can be a detriment if you persist in relationships in, in high velocity environments, right? When, when what you need is, is changing faster than your network, then that's not a good thing. Right. And, and so, you know, um, different things like that, that emerged, but the cool thing for me with all of the work is it's very actionable, right? You can go back to people and say, here's the kinds of connections you need to be thinking about. And you don't have to target the person. You can actually say, let's just change talent processes in general so that everybody's kind of doing this thing. That's good. And it's not a, you know, a, a, a specific, population you're targeting. It's it's kind of raising everybody's game a little bit. Good stuff. Rob, I'll get you out of here on this. What book are you currently reading? 
What book am I currently reading? Well, I'm focused on Together uh, right now. So it's uh, looking at kind of the um, impact of not having social connections on things like health and other metrics and uh, society. And so that really uh, kind of took us off on a different tangent, you know, that was focused very much on how these connections have uh, impact on, on well-being, which I think for just a ton of reasons is equally critical um, to, for people to be thinking about today. Great. Thanks for being on, Rob. I really enjoyed it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday. However, if you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for it, patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers, including early access and podcast sponsorships. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, and how can you not? Please download, like, and or subscribe. See you next time. Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday. However... If you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for it, patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers, including early access and podcast sponsorships. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, then how can you not? Please download, like, and or subscribe. See you next time.